Ruth chapter three, verse one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, that is to Ruth, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may go well or be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself therefore and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. And do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you, that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down and then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, all that you say I will do. Father, what a wonderful story. What a blessing the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz are to us over 3,000 years later. What a joy it is to move through your word and recognize your divine hand and your providence and your intention in life. Not only in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, but in our lives. And we do recognize your hand with us. Father, whether we are hungry coming out of famine this morning or, or perhaps, Lord, lonely coming out of loss or maybe, Lord, we're, we're strong but sensing the end of the harvest, I just ask that you will give us insight to your word and clear our minds of anything that would keep us or distract us from knowing truth today, knowing what you have to say to us, even if it be some old thought, some old belief that doesn't square with you, I just ask, Lord Jesus, that we would be free to hear what the Spirit has to say to this fellowship of the church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 tells us, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. I don't know if you knew this, but I believe in a pre-tribulation catching up or rapture of the church. I believe it's the most literal, biblical perspective. This is what we've been studying for the last three Wednesday nights. This week, by the way, we're gonna be gleaning directly from the book of Revelation. So if you haven't joined us, feel free to join us and, and dive into that. It's gonna be, I think, a really enjoyable study and, and instructive as well. But I wanna go ahead and give you the opening point right now so you can be late Wednesday night. The opening point is very simply this. If a mid-tribulation view of the rapture is correct, a mid-tribulation, so the tribulation is that seven-year period of time of God pouring out his wrath on the world as predicted literally for thousands of years in the Bible going all the way back to Enoch and the seventh generation from Adam. We know this tribulation time is coming. There is no questioning it if you just read through scripture. Read the book of Joel. Read the book of Revelation, chapters six through 19 details this tribulation. Well, if a, a mid-tribulation view is correct, that is that we will go halfway into the tribulation, three and a half years, and then we will be caught up, brought home. If a mid-tribulation view of the rapture is correct, I can guarantee you Jesus is not coming for his church for at least three and a half years. 
We can, we can bank on that. In fact, we can bank on the fact that he's not coming for his church at least three and a half years after Israel signs a peace treaty with a celebrated global statesman the Bible calls Antichrist. If you see that happen, then you can start the clock and in three and a half years, we will be caught up if you take that mid-tribulation view of the scriptures. If you have a pre-wrath view of the rapture of the church, that, is, that, it, that we're gonna be caught up pre-wrath, if, if that's legit, well then Jesus won't be taking anybody home for at least one to two years after the mid-tribulation view. So now you're putting it off four or five years. If a post-tribulation return of Christ is correct, we've got a good seven years to plan and to prepare. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 42, therefore be on the alert, the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. He says in verse, uh, back in 36, the day of the, and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Nobody knows. Verse 44, he says, for this reason you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. According to Jesus' words, a mid-trib, pre-wrath, or post-trib view does not work. Because with all three views, you can count down to departure. You can count down to the time of leaving. You can know roughly when he's going to come. It is only a pre-tribulation view that says he can come at any time and we don't know the day or the hour. And that's what Jesus said. Only a pre-tribulation that is before the tribulation view of the church being caught up fits these wonderful, mysterious words of Jesus. It's the only one that works. I've been over and over and over this in my own study, in my own life, and I keep coming back to nothing else works. And so Paul commended the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, because they were waiting for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know we've been over these things at the bridge. If you've been here any amount of time, you've heard me talk about this. Some have even told me, man, Rick, you talk about the rapture an awful lot. That's because it's our blessed hope. That's because Paul said, comfort one another with these words. This ought to be on our radar. Is it the only thing in scripture? Of course not. Is it the most important thing? Of course not. The gospel is that. The good news of Jesus Christ, that he died, that we might live, that we might have our resurrection. But as we've talked about, even our resurrection, that is the rapture. That is the catching up. The moment of our resurrection is when we are changed, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I'm opening with that because there is a precious protectiveness that Jesus has toward his bride. And we see the same precious protectiveness in Boaz. See, the, the story of Ruth, the book of, of Ruth, as we've talked about, it is about romance. It takes longer to get there than you might think. It is about redemption, which we will see as the story comes to conclusion, but it's also about, as we've said, revelation. This is historic and yet prophetic. It is said in the time of the harvest, right? The harvest in Israel, the springtime harvest, 
which runs between Nisan to Sivan. That is the, the months of roughly March to May. March to May timeframe is harvest time in Israel. It's always when we take our trips to Israel. March to May, Nisan to Sivan, that's the early harvest. Now, there is also a late harvest that comes about in the fall. The early harvest, barley is first, and then wheat. So it's that harvest of grains. The late harvest comes in the fall, and it's grapes, it's figs, pomegranates, dates, olives. That comes in the month of Tishri, which is the October, September, October timeframe. That's the late harvest. It's the final harvest of the year. Now listen to me. If Ruth depicts that first harvest, that early harvest, last week we said Jesus, the first fruits, which was the barley harvest, and then those who are his at his coming, and what we see is then the wheat harvest is Shavuot, Pentecost, when the church began, the early harvest being Jesus' resurrection, and then the church beginning, but then the late harvest, the late harvest, the final harvest of the year, prophetically, what does that imply? that we're a bunch of fruits. I thought you would get that. <laughs> Figs, pomegranates, dates. We're a bunch of fruits, seriously. Seriously, what the book of Ruth shows us is these parallels, these beautiful parallels. Ruth to the church, Naomi to Israel, Boaz to Jesus, and the harvest. The harvest, which specifically we can start thinking about the last harvest, which is the end of the age. These pictures in type, these, these prophetic words in this book are compelling. Ruth has an, a, to, a total of 85 verses. If you just count all the verses straight through the book, four chapters, 85 verses. Truly, it is a little book, but it is a very big deal. A very big deal. So with all that in mind, picking up the story in chapter three, verse one, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Have you seen Fiddler on the Roof? Anyone not seen Fiddler on the Roof? If you haven't seen Fiddler on the Roof, you need to go home, you need to rent it tonight. See if it's on Netflix or Prime or whatever. You need to watch. It's a great musical. Great musical and says so much about the, the Jewish heart. But that's a song in it. Matchmaker, make me a match. This is what Naomi's doing here. I love the line. He winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Hey, Ruth, he's gonna be at the soda shop. Hey, Ruth, we happen to know whose friend's house he's going to be at. This is exactly what Naomi is up to. For the first time now in the whole story, Naomi spills her heart as to what she's been ruminating over through these months of harvest. From the barley to the wheat harvest, she's been watching this. She's been watching Ruth go every day, spending her days there. She's been hearing the stories about conversations and lunch and, and, and interaction between Ruth and Boaz. Ruth and Boaz, who, by the way, are still both clueless. And isn't that often the way it is? You know, the girl and the guy are clueless. The parents are going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've got a great story that I can't tell you within my, my family circle of a, mm-hmm, you know, maybe I'll tell you someday if, if things work out. But um, 
this is what moms and dads will do as their kids are getting older and they're watching. I remember the first time my son-in-law Josiah came to me and said, hey, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to ask your permission to court Hannah. And I'm like, dude, you better ask her permission. Because not five minutes before, she told me if he asked you for me to go out on a date, tell him no. <laughs> Don't know how the marriage is now, but the grandkids are great. Anyway. <laughs> but this is Naomi. She sees this and she's like, hey, hey, I got a plan here. This, this could work out. And what she says is, shall I not seek security for you? Naomi has Ruth on her heart. Naomi's older. In fact, we think Naomi may be as, as old as 80 at this point. That Ruth may be roughly half her age, around 40. That Boaz may be somewhere in the middle, but probably 60 plus. And so Ruth is, or Naomi is recognizing, I, I, need, to, I need security for my, for my daughter. She's her daughter-in-law, but she treats her so much like her own flesh, like her own daughter. Shall I not seek security for you? The word security is manoach. And it means a resting place. Shall I not seek a resting place for you? Isn't that the heart of God? Isaiah 30, 15, thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel has said, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and in trust is your strength. If you're struggling to find rest, all you gotta do is what Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. This is instant, immediate rest. This is not just an eternal rest in the sweet by and by, though it would translate to that when you get translated. But for now, are you stressed? Are you worried? Are you uptight? Are things going wrong for you? Are you uncertain in your life? Jesus says, come to me. Why don't we just come to him? Come to me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Stop working so hard to make it right. Come to me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You stop spinning out scenarios and stressing in your mind and in your heart. Just come to me, Jesus says. By the way, in a similar fashion to Naomi with, with Ruth, it was the Jews who played the role of matchmaker early on between Gentiles and Messiah. The Jews made this match for us. What do you mean? Turn over in your Bibles for a moment to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. As you're turning, this is a famed council in Jerusalem. What's taking place in the book of Acts at this time is, is the church is trying to figure out what to do with these Gentiles. Paul has been out on missionary journey. Peter has, has been to the house of Cornelius. Things are starting to get shaken up and Gentiles are seeping into this pure Jewish faith. What do we do with this? And so they have this whole council to talk about, pray about it, seek the Lord on, is this, is this a Jewish thing or is it supposed to be more than we are? In Acts chapter 15, Picking up in verse six, it says, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, because that's what we do, Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. See, what was happening is the staunch Jewish section or uh, segment of this early church were saying, we have to stay Jewish. We have to continue to follow the laws and Torah and the feasts of Israel and keep every commandment and rest on every Shabbat and do exactly what the Bible says up till now. And, And then there was the other faction led by Paul et al. who were saying, grace grace. Our fathers couldn't keep the law. Why are we putting this on the Gentiles? As if to say, hey, we can go ahead and keep the feast, and we've got a lot of Jewish tradition. That's all, that's all well and good, but you're trying to put this on them as if to say, if you don't join us in keeping our laws, you won't be saved? That was the debate. And so Peter says, verse 11, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as also they are. That's the bottom line. Your church attendance, your legalistic tendencies, your religious bent does not save you. Grace alone saves you. By the way, your traditions, your religious bent, these things, they can be part of your sanctification. The older I get, the less I am anti-tradition. If the tradition encourages faith, if the tradition calls for righteousness in their lives, great, that's a good thing. Just don't let the tradition be your measure of salvation. Your tradition is different than mine, therefore you're not saved. Hey, by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God so that no man can boast. And that's what Peter repeats here again. We're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And all the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Read on. After that, they stopped. Or after they had stopped speaking, James. Now this is James, not the apostle. James the apostle has already been martyred. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And so James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. Shimon, that is Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, he's quoting the prophet Amos, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. All the Gentiles who are called by my name. The prophet Amos said there would be Gentiles, non-Jews from the nations called by the name of the Lord. And so James continues, verse 19, therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. And then their debate goes on. It was this very Jewish church in Jerusalem who recognized what God was doing. And so Paul went 
though he was a staunch religious Jew himself, became God's mouthpiece to the Gentiles. It's the matchmaking of Gentiles with the Lord Jesus, Gentiles drawn into the church. Just now as Naomi had eyes for Boaz for Ruth. Because as I keep telling you, Ruth didn't have eyes for Boaz, not yet. Even in the story this morning, I will show you how she does not yet have eyes for Boaz. But Naomi does. Naomi does for Ruth. This is a match, she's thinking. And so Naomi intervenes because she sees security with Boaz for Ruth. Restful possibilities of this new relationship. So this was not a new idea with Naomi. She's been thinking about this and she says, Ruthie, get thee to the winnowing floor. Verse, uh, note this, oh, verse nine of, of chapter one. Skip all the way back and look. This is not the first time that, that Naomi has thought about this for Ruth. In fact, this is somewhat of an answer to prayer. Chapter one, verse nine, Remember what she said, both to Orpah and Ruth, the two daughter-in-law? She said, may the Lord, may Yahweh grant that you may find rest, Manoach, that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Of course, Naomi didn't realize it would be in the house of her husband, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, that Ruth would find rest. But now, Naomi recognizes what's going on. Ruth has committed to Yahweh, Ruth is committed to Israel, to her people. Ruth is committed to Naomi to stay with her and to be among this people. And Naomi's put two and two together and come up with Boaz, verse three. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes. If you note the word best is in italics there, I'll explain why. Put on your clothes, go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall take notice of the place where he lies, that's important, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. This is gonna be weird. Have you ever planned a first date this way, ladies, thinking this is what we'll do? I, you read this and go, this is very strange. Even more strange, she said to her, all that you say I will do. So Ruth had an implicit trust in Naomi. I think in the same way that we can trust the Hebrew scriptures to be true and to lead us to our Messiah. She had this trust in Naomi and she's about to now go on the strangest night of her life. And if you've read this story before and you think about the lying down and the removing the, the cloak from the feet, what, what is this? There, there's gotta be some deep, strange Hebrew cultural meaning. And there, there's some, there's some. Let me give you some implications here. First of all, the threshing floor. The threshing floor in Israel uh, was the place where obviously threshing or winnowing took place. And, and for it to work, it was, it was on a, a place that was flat, bedrock, and typically an elevated location. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean on the top of a mountain. It could be down on the side of a mountain. In fact, you'll see in the, in the text that, that she's gonna go down from Bethlehem to this place, to this threshing floor, but it's up elevated. It's not down at the, at the floor of a valley, and it's not down where maybe a wine press would be. Remember, Gideon was hiding out in the wine press. 
beating out the grain. So he was threshing in the wine press because he didn't want to be in an up, open, exposed place where the Philistines could see him. Well, here they are winnowing in the exposed place. Why? Because the coastal breezes, this is very typical of Israel even today, especially in the region of what they call the coastal plain and the central mountains of Judea, which run right down the middle and then out to the Mediterranean coast, it gets breezy in the late afternoons. This is very typical of Israel. Breezy, even a bit windy in the late afternoons into the early evenings. And so they went to these threshing floors that were elevated on flat bedrock where the breezes would blow across it. They came in and they began then threshing or winnowing. They took what was a five, usually about a five-pronged rake that was called a fan and they'd scoop up the grain and toss it up into the air and that breeze would then blow the chaff and the heavier grains or kernels would fall back down. And this is threshing. This is winnowing. And this is what would be taking place there. This is what Boaz is doing on the threshing floor. But then on top of that, what they would do is after the evening's work, when all the threshing was done, so imagine this large threshing floor and imagine big piles, piles of grain all around the threshing floor with the chaff all blown away. And once the work was done, the harvest was done. And at the completion of the harvest, it's, it's time to celebrate, baby. And so what they would do is they would eat and drink right there at the flesh, threshing floor. They didn't go home to do it because it's late now and the grain is there and someone's got to guard the grain, but they would eat and drink and celebrate, which is why she says, Naomi, uh, don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. That doesn't mean wait until he's drunk either. It just wait until they're done celebrating and he's satisfied and he's going to lie down and that's where Boaz is tonight. Go find him, she says. And then in verse four, again, she says, it shall be when he lies down, take notice of the place where he lies and go and cover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. This is very specific. Take notice of the place where he lies. Why does that matter? Because Boaz isn't the only man there. In fact, on the threshing floor, again, I mentioned those piles of grain that would be around, almost like spokes of a wheel. The piles of grain would be around the threshing floor, and what the men would do is lie down, head to the grain, feet outward, and that way they would be there overnight to sleep to protect the grain from being stolen all the way around. So if you were looking down from above, you'd see the empty floor in the middle, you'd see these piles of grain, and then you'd see a man spoking out from each one, head to the grain, feet out, as they were sleeping and keeping watch somewhat over the grain itself. That's why Naomi says, notice the place where he lies down, because again, Boaz would be one of several men on the threshing floor that night. You don't want to get the wrong guy. This could go very badly, Ruth if you get Mr. Wrong as opposed to Mr. Right. Keep going. She said, all you say I will do. So she went down, verse six, to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, and again, that doesn't mean drunken, it means satisfied. This is a good night. The work is done. His heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Why does she uncover his feet? 
Well, practically speaking, it would wake him up. You know, this is like a doi, because he's lying there. He would use his mantle, which doubles as a blanket in the cool of the night, and it can get pretty cool as those breezes are blowing in the springtime, and he's laying there, mantle over him, and she uncovers his feet. What would happen with you? All of a sudden, cool breeze on your feet, and you're like, this is not good. Where are the covers? Cheryl, I mean, I mean, where are the, you know, and you're trying to get the covers back. And the breeze blows over, and it would wake him. Of course, in Boaz's case, it would wake him, and to find a woman lying there, oy vey, this was also, also a lowly servant's act of submission and petition. So a servant, think of a servant coming to a master with a request and bowing down at the feet of the master. Lay down at his feet. Uncover his feet, that, that'll wake him, but, but you stay down at his feet. Don't uncover his feet and go sit by his head and go, morning! <laughs> My hour, I miss my hour. <laughs> you lie down at his feet in the place of submission, in the place of petition, but also it is an act of intimacy for the woman to lie down, even anywhere near the man. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not sexually speaking, but there is here in this act a clear appeal to marriage. In other words, Ruth is proposing. She's proposing. Now, at this point, you're saying, well, Rick, if Ruth is proposing, clearly she's in love with the man. Whoa there, Nellie, don't get out ahead of us here. Verse eight, it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. Literally, he was, he was alarmed, and he twisted himself. That, that's the language. Bent forward as he twisted himself. So imagine he's lying there, feet uncovered. Where's that blanket? And he twists and looks, and there is the form of a woman in the shadows, and he is now alarmed. This is a very unusual thing. And Boaz is a man of character. This is not a normal thing to bring a woman up to the threshing floor, okay? So he's startled, and in verse nine, he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. And this is the most significant verse in the chapter. So note this one. First of all, she calls herself, I love this, Ruth, your maid. I am Ruth, your maid, which means I am Ruth, your maid servant or your female slave. It, it, it can be female slave or maid servant. And she uses this, this identity to express a very humble submission. I am Ruth, your maidservant. And my friends, there is a shift in identity here. A shift in identity. No longer is she Ruth the Moabitess. She now sees herself as Ruth, the maidservant of Boaz. And then she uses the words of Boaz when she said, Spread your covering over your maid. Spread your covering over your maid. The word covering there is kanap. Your kanap. Kanap in the Hebrew, translated covering here, can also be translated skirt or wing. Wing. Spread your wing over your maid. We still use the phrase today. We still say, hey, take them under your wing. 
I'll take you under my wing. Spread your wing over me is the concept. It's the exact same thing that Boaz had said to Ruth prior to this situation earlier in the harvest. Verse 12 of chapter two, may Yahweh reward your work and your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Wings, kanap. So it's the same word, and she now turns the word and says, spread your wing over your maidservant. Spread your wing over your maid, she says, for you are a close relative. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse eight, the Lord speaking says, I passed by you, talking about Israel in a prophetically picturesque way. I passed by you and saw you. Behold, you were at the time for love, so I spread my skirt over you. Kanap. I spread my wings over you. I spread the covering of my garment over you. And the Lord says to Israel, and I covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord. This is rife with meaning. I spread this over you, the Lord says, to cover your nakedness. Now, of course, Ruth is not naked here. She's not saying, cover my nakedness. That's not the issue. Again, this is in no way sexual or even suggestive. In fact, down in verse 11, you might note at the end of the verse, Boaz refers to her as a woman of excellence. A woman of excellence. That's a phrase we see more than once in the Hebrew Scriptures. And aset hayil, which means an excellent woman. We see it, Proverbs 31, verse 10, an excellent wife, an aset hayil who can find. For her worth is far above jewels. Obviously, in Proverbs, he's saying, look for this excellent wife. He's not saying, an excellent wife, who can find? <laughs> and so Ruth here echoes Boaz in, in character and, and in, in righteousness, and Boaz sees her that way, and she says, spread your wing, your cover, your kanap over me, for you are, she says, a goel. You are a goel. She is acting in such sweet submission. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you note that? If your Bible says, for you are a close relative, the word there is goel, and it is the first time we hear this in this chapter, in this part of the story. Not the second. Notice up above in verse two again. Naomi says, is not Boaz our kinsman? Don't get confused because we so quickly want to go to kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer, yeah, is not Boaz the kinsman redeemer? It's not what she said. She uses the first word that she used of Boaz back in chapter one, modat. Is he not our friend? Is he not our friend? Naomi at the beginning of the chapter says he's our friend and he's at the winnowing floor, go see our friend. Naomi here says you are a goel, kinsman redeemer. And I suggest the difference here is highly significant. Why? Because Naomi was not looking for a kinsman redeemer for herself. She was looking for a secure husband for Ruth. Ruth invokes the name Goel, kinsman redeemer, along with the responsibility to Boaz because she's looking for a kinsman redeemer for Naomi. 
Naomi's looking out for Ruth. Ruth is looking out for Naomi. I'm telling you, Ruth is, maybe there's something stirring in her heart, but it is more important for Ruth to play the role of, of the woman who marries the kinsman redeemer for the sake of taking care of Naomi than the romance is as of yet. Ruth loves Naomi. Ruth recognizes in Boaz the kinsman redeemer, even while Naomi is recognizing in him the friend. Do you get the difference here? The mother-in-law is concerned for the daughter-in-law. The daughter-in-law is concerned for the mother-in-law, and the language indicates this is where they are coming from. These two dear women are looking out for each other. Sisters, not like Euodia and Suntuke in the New Testament, who Paul calls by name and says, sisters, get along. No, these two love each other dearly. Ruth, for her part, she is willing to marry to provide an heir for Naomi. We know who the heir is, right? Ultimately, Jesus himself. But Ruth wants to marry in and provide that heir and that covering and that protection for Naomi. By the way, speaking of covering, there's something else to understand about this request. As Ruth says, spread your covering over your maid. She's not saying, let me snuggle up next to you and pull your robe over me. Not at all. Covering here, again, kanap, has another meaning that you need to note. It's also in the Bible translated edge or corner. Spread the corner of your robe over me. So what Ruth is asking of Boaz now is for the symbolic act. Because Ruth has a mantle. Ruth is dressed. He, he would put it over her to say, I agree. I agree, I will cover you. Spread your corner over me. This word kanap is also used, the old rabbis tell us, of the Hebrew talit. The talit, which today is the prayer shawl, but it was more than the prayer shawl early on. The talit was the robe with blue tassels, the zitzit. So the talit is the robe, the zitzit are tassels, four blue tassels that would be on the hem of the robe at all four corners, and that is the kanap, the corner, the kanap of the robe. Numbers chapter 15, verse 38, speak to the sons of Israel, tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners, on the kanap of their garments throughout their generations, and they shall put the tassel of each kanap a cord of blue. So there'd be a little cord of blue on each of the corners, the kanap. We see this in 1 Samuel 24 when Saul goes into a cave and, and David sneaks up on him. Saul is, um, as it were, indisposed in the cave. David sneaks up while Paul, Saul is uh, indisposing and, <laughs> and he cuts off a little edge of the kanap, the corner. And then David feels guilty about it. Why? Why? Because that kanap, that corner, signified something. It signified the positional authority of the man. In fact, on the kanap, they often would have a square that was sewn in, embroidered in, that would have something of the title or the position, maybe the family name of the man. And so David, that's probably what he cut off of Saul, and he's holding on to this, and it was a challenge to Saul's ordained authority as king. 
It was, it was undermining. It was a violation, David began to realize, of the authority of Saul, who was still reigning as king, and he began to feel bad about it. But you know what? In the New Testament, we see this again, the canop. And the significance of it, Luke chapter eight, verse 43, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his cloak, the canop. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, who's the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, master, all the people are crowding and pressing in on you. And Jesus said, someone did touch me for I was aware that power had gone out of me. It's an amazing story. Listen, she goes for the canop, the woman in the crowd. She doesn't tap him on the shoulder, excuse me, Jesus. She doesn't try to get his attention. She just goes for the canop, grabbing that corner, that, that symbol of authority. But understand, the reason she does that is it's not the him that matters, it's him who matters. It's Jesus, it's, it's the man for whom the canop is just a symbol of or a mention of his authority. The canop is nothing without the man. The man is the one who bears the authority, and so the authority in the canop goes to the one wearing the robe, and that, that, my friends, is why Ruth sought to be covered by the canop of Boaz. Cover me by the corner. Cover me by who you are. Come into covenant with me. But you know what? Boaz and Jesus both perceived the woman at the hymn. Boaz is startled. He twists his body. Who are you? Jesus says, whoa, who touched me? Hang on a second. When the woman saw, verse 47, she had not escaped his notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He calls her daughter. That's exactly what Boaz is going to call her as well. He calls Ruth daughter. Now, in each case, we see a woman choosing to place herself under the covering, under the covering authority of a man, both Boaz and Jesus, both redeemers. Redeemers. And she calls him the Goel. Ephesians chapter five, verse 21 says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That is men to women, women to men. And then Paul writes, verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. In verse 25 of Ephesians five, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then at the end of the chapter, Verse 32, he says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. This great marital advice in Ephesians chapter five, Jesus says, or Paul says, I'm talking about Jesus and the church. That's the symbol. Understand, we've said this, that the whole biblical marriage relationship is given to us, is designed to teach us of Christ's pure love for his church. That's why we have marriage. Yeah, we mess them up big time. But in the context of Christ and the church, marriage, human marriage can be very good. Out of the context of Christ and the church, human marriage is a mess and a struggle. But watch what Boaz does in verse 10. After she says, spread your covering over your maid, you're a close relative. And then he said, may you be blessed 
of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, <laughs> whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are an aset chayil, a woman of excellence. Your last kindness is better than your first. Wait a minute, what was her first kindness? So this is Boaz's perspective. It was her loyalty and love for Ruth, or for Naomi. It was Ruth's loyalty and love for Naomi. That was her first kindness. That's where Boaz is first introduced to Ruth and says, I've heard of you. You're the one who loves Naomi. You're the one who came with your mother-in-law. This impresses Boaz, and he saw, saw that in Ruth as a great kindness, a great grace, but then he says, this is even better. This is even more amazing. Because as Boaz saw it, and again, we're wondering, where does the romance really begin to spark? I think maybe it was already a bit in their hearts, but they're recognizing a social situation here. Boaz says your second kindness is greater than your first because her first kindness was her love of Naomi and loyalty to her. Her last kindness is her care for Naomi in seeking out the kinsman redeemer. It's not the kindness that she's showing even to Boaz as much as what she is showing to Ruth that she would subordinate her own self, her own perhaps happiness to see her family provided for by her duty to Naomi to marry in and provide the kinsman redeemer for her mother-in-law is a huge kindness. And this is what Boaz is recognizing. You call me Goel. You're not coming at me romantically as much as coming at me and calling me to the duty of our family line. Now, now listen to me on this. It's entirely likely that, that Boaz doesn't have a responsibility to be the Goel to Ruth. Ruth's a Moabitess. She's not an Israelite. She's an outsider who married in and actually married Machlan, who is the son of Elimelech. Boaz's responsibility, if Naomi was a bit younger, his responsibility would have been to Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and therefore to take Naomi as a wife, but she's much older now. Had this happened 20 years earlier, 30 years before, then Boaz's responsibility would be to Naomi, not to Ruth. And as an Israelite, he could very easily say, she's a Moabite, I can't marry outside of Israel. But didn't she marry in? Yeah, but she's still an outsider and she's one generation down from where that kinsman-redeemer relationship or responsibility lies. So it's even more impressive to me that Boaz would say, I will do as you say. I will take this responsibility. Why would Boaz do that? Can I just make a suggestion? Because of Boaz's mother? Who was his mother? If you note in Matthew chapter one, or chapter, yeah, chapter one, verse five, we find out. His mother was Rahab, the harlot. His mother was not an Israelite. He was raised in a family with an Israelite father and a Canaanite mother who married into Israel. This is perfect. This is God-ordained stuff that Boaz is already set, already has a concept and understanding, open arms to this outsider who impresses him so much. 
So Boaz here sees a woman of excellence, of, of chesed, of grace. Ruth sees a gracious kinsman redeemer. Yes, I believe that underneath, the, the, in their hearts, there, there, there is the romance starting, but they both are acting in such pure integrity in their positions in life. But, but there's a potential problem. Verse 12, he says, now it, it is true. And they're still whispering here. I think the other guys are snoring around the thing and they're, they're having this conversation. He says, it is true, I am a Goel. However, there is a relative closer than I. There's another man who would be really the next in line for the daughter-in-law of Naomi. There is a Goel closer than I, verse 13, remain this night. And when the morning comes, if he will redeem you, if he will gaal you, where the word goel comes from, good. Let him gaal you, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. By the way, he says, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. It is because the Lord lives that we are redeemed. So he says, lie down <laughs> until morning. I doubt if either one of them slept a wink the rest of the night. I mean, would you? Besides the fact, now, now Boaz knows if she hears me snore, this could blow the whole deal. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing Floor. And it's interesting the way he says that. I, I just, this is me just guessing. Let it not be known that the woman, he doesn't say that, that you came to the fleshing, threshing floor. He said, let it not be known that the woman came. Almost as though he may be saying that to another guy, one pile of grain over. This is not your business. Do not speak a word. And Boaz's boss, <laughs> yes, sir. I kind of think maybe someone was stirred. They couldn't see who it was because it was dark. She rose before one could recognize another. And he says, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, verse 15, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she takes her cloak off and opens it up. She held it. He measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. And then she went into the city, actually, the text says, then he went into the city, which is problematic for scholars because in the next chapter, he, we realize that he stayed. He didn't go into the city. But it says here, he went into the city, not she went into the city. And we know that Ruth did go into the city. What about Boaz? I'll explain that in just a second. Verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Naomi said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Beautiful. Now, think this through. He measured out six grains, not of barley, not of wheat, and the six grains, it doesn't say how much. He doesn't say six, six ephahs. It doesn't give us a measurement at all. It just says he measured six grains, well, if he measured six grains, why would she need to open her coat? She could just open her hand. Six grains, plop, 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 no problem. But he says, open your coat. So it's gotta be more than just six grains. And some Bible scholars think maybe it's six seahs. 
A sia in Hebrew measurement, a sia would be 10 pounds. Six sias would be 60 pounds of grain. You know, and of course, the Bible does said, say, he laid it on her. So perhaps it was 60, 60 pounds of grain that he puts in her coat that she then wraps up and she can haul back. And it's a, it's a measure of good faith. It could also have been six scoops. He just scoops out and six scoops so we don't have a measure because you wouldn't know what the measure of the scoop was. Or it could be six handfuls that he scoops up and puts into her coat. We're not given exact measurements. So, of course, the old rabbis start thinking, what might this mean? He, she was given six grains. Why, why are we not given measurement? Might this indicate something else? And it's really fun to think about. Because interestingly, while there are six grains or six measures of grain given to her, Boaz also uses the word goel exactly six times repetitively while speaking to Ruth in verses 12 and 13. He says goel, 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 over and over and over, one after the other. And so rabbinical sages, they look at that and they see the redemption of Messiah being portrayed here which they're right. The Goel of Ruth's lineage, the, the, the kinsman redeemer who had come by the kinsman redeemer of Boaz and Ruth, right down the lineage, and they taught, and I'm not kidding you this, you can look this up. Historically, the rabbis have taught that this Goel, our kinsman redeemer, would arrive, Messiah, exactly 6,000 years into church or into world history. 6,000 years, six grains. They see a connection. They would think of Isaiah 63, verse four. The day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come, says the Lord. Messiah is gonna come to redeem Israel. And they see that as 6,000 years in, which they're only partially right. He came 4,000 years in and he's gonna come again 6,000 years in. But the rabbis also say, well, the number six, six grains, perhaps relates to the six attributes of the Spirit of the Lord. Isaiah 11, verse two, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge and fear of the Lord. You know that verse, one of my favorite verses. And so rabbis will go, there are six characteristics of the Lord himself, of the Spirit, perhaps six grains. That's what this is speaking of. Or you know what, more simply, I looked at this and I just thought six is the number of a man. And man needs redemption. We need to be redeemed. We never get to seven, that number of perfection, that number of, of, of completion. We just don't get there. We're 6.6666666 repeating, which is why Antichrist is the number 666. He never gets to completion. It's the number of a man. Well, whatever it is, why ever we're told six grains and, and no measures, we're gonna have to ask Ruth someday but at minimum, Boaz is doing two things for her right here. He is giving her provision and protection. Provision and protection. Provision in just giving her these grains and, and filling her, her mantle with the grains to take back to Naomi and say, I'm on your side, I'm working with you, I'm caring for you. I will make sure that you're okay. That provision, it's wonderful. He's also giving her protection. Because Ruth is now gonna have to walk home from the threshing floor in the cool of the morning, in the darkness of morning, in the shadows of the early dawn. She's gonna have to make her way home to their house in the city. And if anyone sees her, what they will see is a woman 
carrying a huge amount of grain and automatically assume, oh, well, because of her poverty, she was at the threshing floor working extra hard to get more grain for herself and Naomi, and her character would not be questioned, would not be maligned. And by the way, that statement in verse 15, then he went into the city. I don't think it's a scribal error. I think he went with her to the city gate that Boaz would accompany her to make sure that she was not taken advantage of by anybody or robbed or anything, he would walk with her to the city gate and then she went on into home and then Boaz just went right back to the threshing floor. Verse 18, and then she said, Naomi, wait. Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. And Naomi knows Wow, what a guy. He's on our side. But remember, there's another guy. He is closer in line, and Boaz is gonna have to defer to him first. He's gonna ask the other guy, do you want Ruth? And if the other guy does, then, then by, by cultural and, and even Torah law, Boaz would have to step back and let the other guy be the kinsman redeemer, and then the first three chapters of Ruth would be a complete waste of our time. We're gonna to have to wait for the matter to be settled until next week. But I wanna give you something here before we go. I wanna give you some take home. Ruth took grain home. Let me give you some grain to take home with you, but not six things. I'm gonna give you seven things and mark this. They're gonna go by very quickly. Number one, number one, Ruthie, get ready. Ruthie, get ready. Look at verse three. Wash yourself, anoint yourself, Put on your clothes. Ruthie, church, brothers and sisters, get ready. How? How do I do that? Wash yourself. Acts chapter two, verse 37, the people were pierced to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent each of you and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, if you haven't been baptized, what are you waiting for? Get ready. Get washed. Be washed of the Lord. Be washed. And it, it, you recognize it is symbolic, but it's a command of Christ, and it's a beautiful command that does something rich and spiritual and deep and beautiful. No, it doesn't save you. I recognize that. But the waters are cleansing. They are a picture of the cleansing that God has done in your life. Well, I've been a Christian for 42 years of my life. Why do I need to get baptized? Because you haven't been. And if you haven't been, get washed. Get washed, declare the symbol of your salvation just as Jesus commanded. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, I already have the Holy Spirit. Great, maybe it'll work better for you. Maybe he'll be more involved. I don't know, but get washed. And then once you've gotten washed, just keep your feet clean. The nice thing about it is Jesus said in John 13, 10, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You know, we walk through this life and, and we're followers of Jesus and we've been washed and we've, we've been cleansed by the blood of the lamb, but we need to keep washing our feet because our feet get dirty. Our feet get muddy. How do we wash our feet? 
Romans 12, verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians chapter five, verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. There is an ongoing cleansing that the word does. Just being in the word of God cleanses my heart, cleanses me for the week ahead, cleanses me from the week behind. Keep washing your feet. Get ready. Wash yourself. And by the way, I think we need the washing of the water with the word more now in our culture than ever before. As the harvest draws nigh and as the culture runs from truth and absolutes, we need this word. We need this word. Get ready, wash yourself. Get ready, anoint yourself. Anoint yourself, Naomi tells Ruth. Well, Old Testament anointing was for a couple of different reasons, several actual. It was for, for perfume. They would anoint themselves simply against body odor. So use some deodorant, Ruth, perhaps she's saying. It was also for the ordination of a king to rule. It was it was for the ordination of a priest to serve. It was for the ordination of a prophet to prophesy. Anoint yourself. Be anointed. You know, the New Testament makes anointing an essential for every believer. This is not, ah, yeah, this is for those Pentecostal Holy Spirit types. Anointing is for all of us. Anointing is the promise of the Spirit in your life and not only his presence, but his power in you, his anointings, his giftings that he gives you. And John says in 1 John 2.20, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. He says in verse 27 of 1 John chapter 2, as for you, the anointing which you have received for him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But his anointing, as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, then just as it is taught you, you abide in him. You know what's interesting about that? In 1 John chapter 2, where in verse 20 he says, you have an anointing and you know, verse 27, you have this anointing, it abides in you. Do you know what he's talking about in between there? Lies and deception. There is so much deception in the world. There are so many lies, so many people saying, look this way, go this way, do that. How are we to know? Well, we are washed in the water of the word and we have this anointing of the Holy Spirit to give us discernment in a world that is trying to keep us from discerning anything. We need the anointing. I need the word and the spirit working in concert as the Holy Spirit does so that I am not deceived here at the end of the harvest. Get ready, wash yourself. Get ready, anoint yourself. Get ready, we're still on number one. Get ready, put on your best clothes. But I told you there in verse three, the word best is in italics. Why is that? Well, the word clothes is simlat. And, and we're not exactly sure what she's saying, but we know this much. Ruth did not dress down for the night. She didn't throw on some old raggy sweats and call it good. She dressed up. And this could be explained by her laying aside finally her clothes of mourning or widowhood and actually putting on clothes of joy and celebration. Ruth and Naomi were still rather poor, so it's not like she would have all kinds of fancy clothes, but she had one nice dress, one nice robe 
that she could wear. Put that on. Get rid of the old days and the mourning. Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Hey, we need to, as followers of Jesus, as the church, we need to recognize we are robed in salvation. And part of our readiness in being washed and anointed is what we wear. We are wearing salvation. This is a good thing. This is not mourning and widowhood. This is joy as we look to the groom. Number two, look at verse four. She said, it shall be where, when he lies down, you shall notice the place where he lies. Number two, how do we get ready? How do we prepare for our groom? Notice the place where he lay. Notice the place where he lay. You might say, remember, not at the threshing floor, but the tomb. The threshing floor after the threshing of Jesus' life was done at Calvary, after the grain, the kernel of his life fell to the ground and he went into the grave, notice where he laid. That's why we take communion every week and on Wednesdays, to notice where he lay. And when we go to notice where he lay, we see that the tomb is empty. He is not here. He has risen just as he said the angels told them. And we go to the garden tomb when we visit Israel. Whether it's the actual tomb or not, there's debate about that, but it's a beautiful location. And I love when you go down the steps into this little kind of a stone courtyard and there cut into the side of the hill is a stone tomb that dates way back. And they actually put a door on it, which is weird. And on the door is carved, he is not here. He is risen. And you can go in and you can look and he's not. I mean, I've been every time I go to Israel, I've checked. Nope, still nobody. He is not here. Notice, remember the place where he lay. Why? Because you don't want to get the wrong guy. You don't want to get the wrong guy. Naomi tells Ruth, make sure you get the right guy. Notice where he lay. The way you know the right savior, the way you know you are following the right one is you notice where he lay because he ain't there anymore. Number three, be a humble servant. Be a humble servant. Again, Ruth in verse nine says, I am your maid. Spread your covering over your maid for you are a goel. Be a humble servant. This is so humble and subservient of her and her behavior and her actions. It is so sweet, so meaningful. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you or lift you up at the proper time. We just don't need jockeying for position or place in the church. You know, just lie down at his uncovered feet. Because when you lie down at the uncovered feet of Jesus, you know what you see? Nail scars. And you recognize how humble he became for your salvation and for mine. We all have roles in the fellowship. We all have roles in different churches. You know, as Les has been saying recently, he says he quoted it from Cam, but Cam says she got it from Les. Stay in your lane. Just stay in your lane. Be content to do what you do. Well, that's great for you, Rick. You're the senior pastor. You, you, you know, you're, the, you're the big guy. No, I'm not. Where'd you ever get that idea? 
Because I teach on Sundays? Because I work with shepherd staff that, that I'm the big guy? No, that's completely false. And, and, and the whole view that we have in churches today of priestly bishops and senior pastors and lead guys is completely false. I am as much sheep as anyone in here. We together. But you know what my role is? God said, Rick, I want you to teach the word. So I teach the word. That's what I've been asked to do. That's my job. So I do that. There are a lot of things that happen around here I don't do because I'm no good at it. I teach the word because that's what he's asked me to do. We need humility. And by the way, it is humbling. Sometimes even to the point of embarrassment. But listen to me. If humble submission is ever difficult for you, again, look at his feet when you're laying there and notice the nail scars and recognize what Jesus did, what he left to serve us. So get ready, washed, anointed, dressed. Notice the place where he lay. Be a humble servant. Number four, rest under his covering all through the night. Just rest under his covering, as Ruth said, spread your covering over me. Rest there. Ruth did not go and thresh. Ruth went to rest. And again, whether she slept or not through the excitement and, and what was taking place, I don't know, but she was at rest. Can you imagine her heart the moment she was assured a future and a hope because of Boaz? When he finally says, I got you and Naomi, Ruth, I will see this through. Can you imagine the weight that's lifted and the, the peace that would come as she rested under the corner of his garment, under his covering? Psalm 91 verse four says, he, speaking of Yahweh, will cover you with his pinions and under his wings, his kanap. You may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. This is us now as we serve, as we wait for the day, do so resting under the covering of Jesus. Number five, be an excellent bride. Be an aset hayil. Men and women alike. Revelation 19 verse seven, his bride has made herself ready. Be an excellent bride. As the church, as individuals within the church, may we be excellent and righteous, pursuing holiness and purity and all things godly. It was given to her to clothe herself, Revelation 19, verse eight, in fine linen, bright and clean. What's that? The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. He's given us righteousness to live in, to behave by. So do so. Be an excellent wife. Number six, number six, Prepare for the exit unknown. Prepare for the exit unknown. Verse 14, she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Ruth's exit from there was stealthy and anonymous. No one knew who she was. Even if someone knew she had been there, she was gone as quickly as she came Call it the rapture of Ruth. There's a picture here, I think, in how she slips away and how the church is going to slip away in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Have I mentioned I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture? <laughs> I do. We'll talk more about that Wednesday night. Finally, finally this morning, until Jesus, our Goel, our kinsman redeemer, comes to catch us up, number seven, wait 
until the matter is settled. Wait until the matter is settled. Verse 18, Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. The word wait there means sit down. <laughs> I can imagine as they're having this conversation and the enthusiasm and exciting is revving up that Ruth is just walking back and forth in the house. I can't believe he did this and all this great and this is what's going on. And finally Naomi says, sit down, daughter. Just sit down and rest. He'll take care of it. And that's kind of the point. He's got this. You just wait. The day will not be over, Naomi says, before he has settled this because Naomi knows something of Boaz. Naomi at this point expresses great trust in Boaz. He gonna take care of this, sweetie. Sit down. It's out of our hands. This word settled. The man will not rest until he settled it today. We'll end with this Hebrew word. It is kilah. Kilah, which translates finished. He will not rest until the matter is finished. As Jesus at Calvary bowed his head and said, to die, it is finished. Do you realize where Ruth is here at the end of chapter three? She is right where we are. She is awaiting the moment of her redemption. She's waiting for the wedding. And that's where we are this morning. The work of our redemption is finished, was finished at Calvary. But now all that's left for him to do is to come and bring us home. Why? Because Philippians 3 verse 10 or verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news is this, that you do not have to spend the rest of your life in poor, mournful uncertainty. You can know that the matter is settled. You can rest assured of redemption in him. So I advise you to get ready because Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Father, we thank you for your word to us in the book of Ruth. We thank you for the pictures here and the gospel that we are reminded of, your deep love for us as our redeemer. And we pray, Lord, that you would make our hearts ready now Lord, if anyone needs washing, that they would be washed. If anyone lacks anointing, they would pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit, fresh and new this morning. If anyone has been walking around in their raggedy old clothes, that they would be dressed in robes of righteousness, wrapped in garments of salvation. Lord Jesus, I could go through all of these, but I just pray that you would make us ready for your coming and that we might be at peace until the day that you call us home. In Jesus' name, amen.